0: Everybody, welcome back to the Smattering, where we like to answer the hard questions about investing. I'm Jason Hall, and back and back with his normal voice. Apparently, we missed like the Teddy Pendergrass great deep voice. Jeff was a little under the weather. Jeff Santoro, voice of the people, once again. Hey, buddy. Hey, yeah, I had a, I had awesome. <clears throat> low movie trailer
1: recording sick voice last week so maybe we should have done a pod. it would have been would have been fun
0: yeah except for that you know 102 degree fever thing but hey it happens <laughs> <laughs> so on to this week's episode we've got something fun i'm gonna i want to preface this uh with a hat tip to john Ratanti, john rotanti is one of the smartest people in the room when it comes to picking stocks when it comes to analysis. And I'm pretty fortunate to be able to to connect and chat with him on a pretty regular basis. And we were were chatting on Slack one day last week. And apropos of nothing, he just asked me this question, Jeff. He asked me, if you could only buy five stocks and that's all you could hold for the next 10 years, what would they be? It kind of blew my mind. Yeah, you texted this to me the day before
1: we were supposed to meet to plan this week's pod, and it was like a, a two-text exchange. It was you telling me that and me saying, I love it. That's this week's pod. So like, here we are. Basically.
0: Yeah. And here's the thing, too, right? So we're, it, there's there's probably some of you that are, that are listening right now that you saw the, the title for this week's show, and may, you may be expecting – the Jeff and I are going to each pick five stocks and we're going to get deep into those five stocks and why they're the five stocks we would own for the next 10 years. And that's actually not what we're, we're going to do, Jeff. I, I kind of described this, and you thought it was good enough that I should say it on the show. The, you know, the conversation is less about stocks and more about finding conviction and finding yourself as an investor. And to me, you know, the stocks are the seasoning. They're not going to be the main course of this conversation. Yeah.
1: And it was a fascinating, you know, I immediately loved the idea for this pod. And then as I started to think through it, and we're going to talk about this, it was harder than I thought. And I think you had the same experience where it's not necessarily like if I had to pick five, they wouldn't necessarily be like my five favorite, (laughs) right? Like there's different criteria you start to think about and, and different ways to think about, about risk that you don't have to think about when you're building, you know, a 25, 50, 100 stock portfolio. You know, I I was thinking it's easier. It's easy to be diversified. Um, it, that allows you to take more risk with with some speculative companies that are maybe earlier on or are sort of binary in their potential outcome. But when you start to try to think about cons- um, consolidating, getting down to just a handful, that kind of concentration, yeah, yeah, it's a whole different way of thinking about it. And I think, yeah, that's where we want to focus in this episode is not on the actual stocks that that we do have five we're going to mention, but um, talking more about the thought process that went into selecting them and the kinds of
0: things that were we forced to do this, we would take into consideration. One thing I think would be cool too, if people, um, after listening to this, if they can go to our Twitter or if they don't do Twitter, they want to email it to us. um, I'd love for people to share maybe their five stocks for 10. Again, after listening to this whole episode and kind of going through this mental exercise with us, I think it'll be fun. Jeff, how do people, how do people get in touch with us? Yeah. So the show account is
1: on Twitter at smattering show. We also have an email, the smattering show at gmail.com. Um, that's where we would want that feedback. But for those of you that are new to the pod, um, we also have a YouTube channel. You can just search for the smattering, and wherever you find our content, we, we really appreciate if you, if you could rate, review, and share the show, that helps more people find it spread spread the show around um, and grow our audience. But yeah, I, I agree with you. I'd love to hear people's people's five that they come up with, or even if there are other criteria or considerations that others thought of as you know sort of listening to our conversation here, I'd, I'd love to hear that too, because I'm sure we're not going to come up with you know every single thing that one would think about when trying to do this.
0: So should we start off at least and share kind of as we went through this exercise and the stocks that we that we each came up with?
1: Yeah, let's just list the five and then we'll dive into um why we or what we were thinking about coming up with them.
0: Yeah, so th- it was funny when John asked me that question like I think I think I actually lost a couple of minutes of of time. Like it seemed like the sun had moved in the sky and the light had subtly changed. And the, like I froze for a minute there. But then I really quickly came up with probably 10 stocks or so that it was really easy to like say, okay, these are my highest conviction companies. These are the companies that like have the common threads that I look for, that I know they're good businesses. And like I, I have a high level of confidence that if I buy them today, a decade from now, it's still going to be a really important business, right? It's going to be a probably has some good tailwinds that are going to continue to drive it. All of the stuff we're going to talk about through the show. And and the the tent is I kind of thought through a little bit more and narrowed it down. Um, Digital Realty Trust was one that came to mind really quickly, right? This is the REIT that owns data centers. They have like like Equinix is a big data center company they lease a lot of space from digital realty trust, right? So again, the tailwinds tailwinds behind data, um, behind machine-to-machine communication, all that stuff. And Taiwan Semiconductor, making all those chips that are going in the data centers and the smartphones and the cars and everything else. Mercado Libre, e-commerce, Latin America, payments, Latin America. And like for those three, Jeff... The thing that really jumped out to me is that all three are they're kind of first movers. They have a big kind of first mover advantage in what they do. They have a lot of advantages of scale. They get some network effect benefits that are tied to their business. So you start thinking about like durable competitive advantages when you want to own a company for 10 years. You know, I think those three, those three had it.
1: Yeah, I, I like I like the durable competitive advantage point with those three, you know, you could call it a moat, but to me, like the first thing I thought of, and I think the, the, those first three companies fit into this bucket pretty easily is the first thing I thought of when you asked me this question was these are, these are companies that have to be strong enough in their positions that they're going to be here in 10 years, right? Yeah, right? Forgetting for a second, the fact that you want them to perform well and beat the market and all that kind of stuff. Like 10 years is a long time in the world of investing, and there are a lot of companies that are here now that won't be here 10 years from now, and there are a lot of companies that were here 10 years ago that aren't here now. Um, and sometimes they can be the the shining star, you know, um, off talked about companies that are out there that, you know, have a misstep or get disrupted or get acquired or something like that. And I, I don't think any of those, you know, there's such tailwinds behind... The the businesses that those three are in, you know, thinking about big secular trends that are going to be here in 10 years. In 10 years, we are going to need data storage. In 10 years, we're going to need semiconductors. In 10 years, people in Latin America are going to need, you know, are going to shop online and, and need find, you know, fintech resources, right? So that checks all the boxes there. And then to your point, the there, these three are leaders in those areas, right? So um, as a starting point, I think that's a really good sort of first cut of thinking about like h- how to pick five stocks that you want to hold for the next 10.
0: Yeah. So so like from a business perspective, right, those are some of the, with with those three. And then another one that you know, I'm a huge fan of um, is, is Brookfield Corporation, right? So this is the parent company of Brookfield Asset Management, the parent company of Brookfield Renewable, Brookfield Infrastructure, Brookfield Business, which is their 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 industrials subsidiary that buys and operates industrial companies. Um, they own a big reinsurance business that they're starting to build. Um, so I kind of cheated a little bit with Brookfield because it's kind of like buying six other stocks in a way. Well, it
1: made me think about how another way you could go about this exercise is to think about companies with optionality, right? Yeah, companies that go. that don't, and I think we're going to talk about that a little bit to some degree with our fifth choice too in a minute here. But you know, to your point about Brookfield having all of those different companies underneath their umbrella, if any one business struggles or there's a macro trend that you know or a tailwind, uh, a macro headwind that you know, impacts one business, you know, they have enough other sort of things going on that they should be pretty insulated from like an overall business slowdown. Right. Um, right. And again, to the earlier point about, you know, t- just general secular tailwinds, like we, we need infrastructure
0: badly all over the world, and that's not going to stop. Yeah, like tri- trilli- trillions of dollars, right? Right. So, And then the renewable side, it's, it's the same, it's the same story with it, with, with energy. So, To me, like that you mentioned that optionality. I think it's not just optionality on the downside, but as 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 Brookfield Corporation generates free cash flow that it needs to decides to deploy, it it can deploy it where it's most advantageous, right? Right. Versus a company that does a thing, maybe now isn't really the best time to be spending money in that area. They they do it anyway, (laughs) right? And Brookfield, like their their legacy of capital allocation under Bruce Flat is. Just impeccable, right? So, um, isn't it crazy that my my like high growth, more speculative investment? And this is the fifth one. Was Boston Omaha?
1: <laughs> yeah, the riskiest of the five is is well. Actually, I do think it's actually a risky choice because they're they're still relatively new in you know, as, as a public company and also sort of like where they are in their business cycle.
0: Right. They haven't, Um, they haven't, they haven't invested and allocated capital and managed through a couple of economic cycles and different interest rate environments and all those sorts of things. Right. Yeah. I mean, they, they could, they could
1: theoretically, right. Be at the very beginning of what turns out to be this decades long conglomerate success story, you know, a la Mer- Markel or Berkshire Hathaway, um, or Markel, if I pronounce Markel, that wrong, yeah. um, or or not. And I just think it's a little early to to say that for sure, but I think you and I are on the same page that it's similar to what you just said with Brookfield where they're generating cash and they have multiple places where they can then deploy it right they have their insurance business they have their billboard business they have their broadband business they have all of the you know minority investments they made that sort of get umbrellaed under their asset management business you know so they're sort of in that same boat of being able to turn that cash flow into either reinvestments into multiple businesses under their umbrella or into new areas should they find something that's compelling so um it's it, there are some similarities there but I agree with you. Out of the five, that's probably the one that has the highest risk of not not being one you look back on a decade later and say, you know, there was probably a better choice I could have made there. But I, I agree with you. I I, I might have put it in my top five
0: as well. I, I'm a big fan of that company. Even even within like that risk, to me, I think the risk is more opportunity cost than downside risk. Yeah, yeah. You no, know, I would agree with that. It Ends up just being an underperformer because you know, so far the the two co-CEOs there seem to be quite conservative with their approach. They're not using tons of leverage. They're not using massive amounts of stock-based compensation to hire the best and brightest and washing out all of the retail investors, right? They just, it seems like the approach they're taking is good. I'm going to, here's like, here's the, for that one, Jeff, I'm going to give a book read suggestion to people that is the thing that has reminded me the most about the management of, of Boston Omaha and why I think like, historically it just seems like it really lines up with being a real alpha-generating compounder. Have you read um, William Thorndike's The Outsiders? No. The full The full title of the book is The Outsiders, Eight Unconventional CEOs and Their Radically Rational Blueprint for Success. If you just Google Outsiders Investing Book, it'll come up. It's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. And it looks at eight CEOs and basically the, the 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 actions that they took, the way they thought about allocating capital over their careers and how it led to wonderful returns for investors in very different economic environments, different industries, very different businesses. So I just it's one of my it's one of the best investing books you can read. So check it out. So when you were thinking
1: through this, because, you know, you you had that sort of that conversation with John that spurred spurred this whole thing on, we talked a little bit about, and I think we'll continue to talk about the the common traits that you and I kind of both agreed that led to these five companies. But I'm wondering what you found to be the most important part of like your thinking process that you had to go through when you were trying to
0: decide on these five. Yeah, so the first thing that came to mind well, it really wasn't the first thing, but it was one of the first thoughts I had was man, I'm really glad I don't have to actually invest like this. And I I, I it, it further to me it kind of further cements that like my respect for people that do have ultra concentrated portfolios like our our a good friend of ours um Bram Withers. Uh, Brian's going to come on the show at some point, actually in the next couple of months. Um, now that I've said it, I must manifest it and make it so. He's told us he wants to. And we've we have an idea <laughs> for something that I think he'll be amazing um, to have on. But he has a he. I think he owns less than twenty stocks right now. He typically. Yeah, is,
1: I want to say I saw a Twitter thread and he's got like seventeen or something
0: like that. Yeah, yeah, and I I could not do that. Like I just couldn't. But as a like as a thought exercise. I think this is such a valuable thing to do because it really, really forces you to like rationalize what's actually important, right, with your money. And when you're allocating that today money to try to turn it into more tomorrow money, you have to really distill that investment down to the stuff that generates investor returns. And like when it came to like thinking about those particular businesses especially digital realty trust taiwan simi and mercado libre and brookfield i think it's going to once like everything rationalizes out with how the restructuring they've gone through and the spinoff of the asset management business and like we see it i think it's really going to just be it's all about cash flows right like seeing the cash flows that are generated by their operations because you gap gap profitability is important over the long term, um, but cash is king. Cash is what pays for everything, right? The check, right. the check you, the the corp, corporation rights isn't from paid for by profits; is paid paid for by cash flow, right? So that was like the key thing to me. It's like it's all about companies that generate positive cash and that have a clear line of sight to continue doing it and growing it, particularly on a per per share basis, right? I think that's the really important thing is growing it on a per share basis.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with you. When I was thinking through it, my go-to thing was cash flows as well. Um, I mean, profitability to some extent too, but I was really thinking about the cash flow part. And But what I found myself thinking about was it's so it's so different from how <clears throat> I in, I actually invest and in the way I build my portfolio. Like I've talked on the podcast several times about how I used to be more in the ballpark of a hundred and a hundred and twenty stocks when I was newer to investing, and as I've learned more, I've sort of weeded some out. I have become pickier. I don't I don't <clears throat> as much. I used to be at a point where like as soon as I learned about a company, I wanted to buy it, and now I'm a, way more discerning on the front end, but. I I came up with like a baseball analogy in my head. Like I found myself shying away from. It made me think about this exercise. Made me think about. uh, It was sort of um, a way for me to figure out where my risk tolerance really is, because I found myself almost entirely abandoning um, the home run potential stocks that I own now. Because I have this diversified portfolio, and I figure out if one or two of them or a lot of them fail, I still have my my compounding slow growers in there to help me out. Um, and this is all about getting on base. Right. I, I went completely from like thinking about home runs to like who's going to hit 350 for me and contend for the batting title for the next 10 years. Like that, that was right. my mindset to use a baseball. When you've, got, that. when
0: you've got five chances to the coming up to the plate versus a hundred chances coming up to the plate, you have to focus on your, your hit rate, right? That's yeah.
1: Right. And then, but then there's all these weird other things I kept thinking about. Like, well, like what kind of return would I be happy with if I only had five stocks? Like, is it okay to just match or slightly beat the market? Do I give up on wanting to like crush the market? You know, like if one of my five is, I don't know, whatever, pick pick your height, you know, pick your Amazon or your Netflix when it was, you know, a small cap. If one of my five is one of those, cool. But like if I was doing this exercise in nineteen ninety seven, probably wouldn't have picked Amazon you know um i probably would have picked you know ibm or something like that you know some you know blue chip at the time um so it it just it that's what jumped out to me it was like i i really found myself running through the list of companies that i really like or that i think are home run potential you know smaller companies younger companies and being like nope too risky only can have 5 and i found myself being pulled towards dividend paying cash flow positive you know Slowing, grow, slower growing um, companies. Although I think the five that you, let, you listed here tonight, I, I don't think all of them are necessarily slow growers. I, I think you could put them yeah. in the growth in the growth stock category.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Brookfield, they they their most recent investor presentation. You know, they they said they're going grow, to grow their assets under management okay. at a twenty percent Kager until they get to a trillion dollars in assets under management. I think they got like 700 billion right now. So there, there you go. Right. And then that's, that's just the asset management business. That doesn't even talk about like the actual operating entities that own assets. Right. So no, but you're, you're exactly right. I think you're exactly right. And it's, but the point is it's like, it kind of rationalizes like not getting caught up in just a company that can grow its revenue and that, a lot of time is an empty number, right? And, you know, I've kind of poked at you about the price-to-sales metric before because they're not all created the same, right? It can be very different from industry to industry. And, you know, the price-to-sales valuation for a company that generates, you know, 80% gross margin and 25 or 30% operating margin is going to be very different from, you know, like a retailer that might generate... Four or five percent operating margin, right? So it's all about cash flows and and earnings based valuations for me, and like as a result of that, Jeff, like some of my favorite story stocks, like you were just talking about before, yeah they didn't come close to making the list for me either. yeah, some companies that I really love, and I love their mission, but they're not at the point that if I was that concentrated. Like what it told me is like the probability of like the risk. And this is the David Gardner uh, definition of risk is the probability of a permanent loss of capital is too high to stomach when I'm putting 20% of my money into that one company. Right. Like the one
1: that jumped out to me as a company that I really like and I have high conviction in, and it's actually one of the, um, one of the companies that's in my three stock portfolio for our competition is outset medical which is the company that does the the tableau kidney dialysis machine right right i i, I have a lot of conviction in that company i do think it'll be a, a a good company to own a good stock to own um but it's it does not generate positive cash flow there's still a lot of risk i think that you know it doesn't turn out the way i th- i hope it will so like i can't put it in this only get five stocks like the only reason i own that is because it's one of whatever i own right now 80 86 stocks or whatever 60s at whatever i have right um so that if it goes if it goes to zero i'm okay it's one of
0: 60 you know what i mean it's it's a whole different ball game well that's the that's the risk adjusted rate of return right that's when you you can take uh one percent of your capital right and you can risk it risk losing it and it's okay right yeah exactly you know i i hope i don't i hope it doesn't go to zero
1: um but if it did it would not have a material impact on my retirement you know not right now in my early 40s um one thing i the other thing that sort of i started to wrestle with going through this was you know to what degree d- did you think about or do you think someone should think about if they were going to do this valuation because i i'm of two minds of it cuz one is like obviously that you know price matters you don't want to overpay for a company, but on the other side, ten years is a long time, and you can get away with a lot of valuation mistakes over a decade not all mistakes you know like there are companies that you know were at the height of the dot com bust in two thousand two two thousand one that took Fifteen years to get back. Some have okay. never recovered um, okay. from where they were during that peak. So most, most
0: of those stocks did it. Yeah,
1: yeah. But you know, y- you can get away with a lot if that's your. If you know you're going to have them for ten years. So I, I'm curious
0: how much thought you gave to valuation. Yeah, it's Brian Feroldi. Um, he's doing a lot of great stuff out there for for individual investors. Um, he. It's been a few years ago. He, he put it in a way that to me just really described it well when it comes to valuation. If you're going to overpay for a company and maybe overpay by a pretty good margin, it's best to do it with a very high-growth company in a very large market while it's still relatively small, right? Because that's how you can get away with wildly overpaying. right? And a, a decade later, it's fine. It's fine, because even if the multiple comes down two-thirds, if the company's five times larger, you've almost certainly outperformed the market, right? Particularly if the economics have worked out, right? <clears throat> the unit economics and you know the economic output of the business, right? The thing is, is when with this, like the game we're playing right here, so digital realty trust, for, for example, the stock. So we're recording this on... After, after market close on the 10th of January. Uh, the stock's down 37%. On a dollar basis, it's down from like 170 to 102. Something like that. 160 to 102. So it's got to gain what? To get back to where it was. It's got to gain about 80%. 70% 60 it's got to gain call it 65% is what it would have to gain to get back if i had to bought this at its playing the same 10 year game if i had have bought this stock a year ago i'm going to lose and it's just market market average performs and for this company since the dividend yields a pretty big part of its total return if i get 5 or 6% in gains from the stock and 3 or 4% from the dividend, it's going to take me five years just to get back to break even, right? right? So when you get to these larger companies that have already gotten to scale, it's a lot more important to pay a fair, reasonable price.
1: Right. Like I, I think without looking up their market caps, just kind of going off of my memory, of the five we listed the one that probably has the best chance of catching up to overpaying for it and would probably be Boston Omaha by the virtue of the fact
0: that it's the smallest of the five Um, in, you know what I mean? So, right. So if you pay, yeah, it's, I mean, this is like a billion dollar market cap company, so it's a perfect example of, you know, you pay too much and and it can still work out well. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I think that's exactly it. I would say, go ahead.
1: Now I was going to say the other, the thing that I was thinking about with valuation, and it it's something that's been on my mind over, because of how the last couple of years have gone in the markets. Where, because I was new and excited and didn't know much better, when I look back at some of the cost bases I paid for companies in 2000 and 2020 and two thousand twenty and two thousand twenty one, I am like mad at myself, right? I want to like reach into my time machine and smack myself in the head when I'm paying. 50, 60 70 times sales for for some of these companies for companies um, that are already worth 25 30 40 billion dollars right exactly yeah. yeah and you know that's overpaying to a point where the, only the top one percent of companies over the history of the markets would outperform that over you know a, a five or ten year span right but well, Jeff you didn't know any better and nobody was telling you Right, but my point no, so I'm just saying like I that's sort of like on my mind because of where I am in this sort of time frame of investing. But now when I look at like I think the pendulum for some people has swung so far back in the other direction that yep. they look at a premium for a company that still has a huge growth uh potential ahead of it and get freaked out and say, "Oh, I'm not paying any more than this this amount of, you know, this time sales or whatever." Um And I think you know it's an art, not a science, right? There's there's a lot you have to kind of consider and think about, and some of it's risk taking to some degree. But I, what I was thinking was, you're never going to get a really great company that is like a grower for the the vast majority of its time on the markets, cheap. No, right? You might get it cheaper or relatively cheap or the cheapest it's ever been, but you're probably still going to pay, you know, a, a valuation that you know a really hardcore value investor might turn his turn his nose up at and just never never get in and some of those can turn out just fine like just to go back to like you know the 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 often referenced examples of like Netflix and Amazon they were n- not cheap for most of the time that they were you know on the markets but if you bought Amazon in the late 90s you did really well
0: yeah, it's 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 amazing how some of these companies that we're talking about here are are still positioned to grow. I kind of apropos of earlier in the conversation here, but Taiwan Semi for example, I mean they're dominant in like the the, the foundry that everybody uses. Uh, I think they're going to spend over a 10-year period like somewhere between 200 and 300 billion dollars to expand their capacity. Um, so you can get growth in these Big, stable companies, too. And to your point, the valuation has come down a lot. But even these aren't necessarily – they're not cheap, right, by any stretch. They're not cigar butts here you're going to get a puff off of. Right. No, it's a free puff. So did you consider
1: management at all when you thought of these five? Because I think that's another – when you think about having to have such a concentrated portfolio that you're stuck with for, you know, if you want to look at it from a potentially negative point of view, you're stuck with these companies, hell or high water for 10 years, you know, a lot can go wrong in a decade. And, you know, we've seen just in the last couple of years, a couple of examples of companies where really have sort of dug their own grave, so to speak, you know, just management making bad acquisitions or just allocating capital poorly in general, um, you know, the the one that comes to mind for me is like you know Peloton, right? That that's a company that had all the momentum and and brand um, loyalty and enthusiasm that you'd want, and really because of just mismanagement, you know, they're, they're
0: even really though it had a point. founder pulling the pulling the the strings, right? Right, for a majority of that period, yeah. You know, so, this is
1: an interesting one. Go ahead, Jeff. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I'm just curious if, if in these five, like, did were you conscious of management or leadership when choosing them, or after thinking through them, you you went back and said, oh, and it just so happens that, you know, maybe they're in the position to
0: be f- picked by you because they had good management. So I'm just curious where your head yeah. was with that. It's kind of a yes, but I think is maybe the best way to put it, right? Because there is like a body of evidence that talks about like founder-led businesses are like if you're looking at outperformance founder led businesses are a larger cohort than not founder led businesses. Right. So that's, but I don't know if there's causation or correlation, you know what I mean? So that's, that's tough to say. And uh, I, I love, I love Bruce flat. You know, again, he didn't found Brookfield. It's been around for over a century in one form or another, but he's been there since 1990. Um, so you have a wonderful leader, Marco scalperin is the founder of Mercado Libre. He's still relatively young. He's in his early fifties. He's not that much older than, than I am. Wow. That makes me feel really old to say, um, yeah, what have you done? What if I bought some Mercado <laughs> Libre? <laughs> that's about, that's about on somebody else's advice a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, Taiwan semi's founder has stepped away from the business a number of years ago. He's in his eighties. Um, Boston, Omaha, yeah, the two founders are there. And that's that, to me, that's really important. S- but but I also kind of took like the, the 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 some idiot proxy, I guess is the way that I think about it. And I'm uh and you know, buy companies that any idiot can run or that some idiot can run because eventually some idiot will run it. Yeah. And I think that's important. Um because like like, like you said, a lot can change in a decade. Apple, let's take Apple, for example. A decade ago, Steve Jobs had just died. I think he died in late 2011. So Tim Cook was named the permanent CEO not all that long before that. And there was a lot of question about what was Apple's future and could Tim Cook, you know, he's you know replacing an absolute legend. And then the company went on to have to have this incredible decade. And yeah. created He created much more shareholder value than Steve Jobs ever did. Enormous. I don't know about yeah. that. Well, in terms of no, raw that, dollars, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah, no doubt about that, right? But also continue to innovate and continue to deliver wonderful products and at, at a scale that is just still mind-boggling. So like you said, a, de- a lot can change in a decade. So I think because of that, as much as Boston, Omaha, yes, that's kind of like the betting on the jockey is our buddy Lou Whiteman puts it because I am that's one that's I own because I think they have the right two leaders. I love that there's a team, that there's a partnership, right? Because that helps kind of check, I think, some things that's really healthy for that kind of business. But I think it's more important, like the quality of the business, thinking about the culture. And that's not just management, right? That starts with the board, too, uh, because that's like Brookfield, for example. I think, again, you've got Brookfield Corporation, Brookfield Asset Management, Bruce Flats running those. Then you have their infrastructure business, the industrials business, the real estate business, the reinsurance business, the energy business that all have separate leadership. And managements have moved from each of these different entities over time, so they have – like it's, they're all so steeped in this same kind of corporate culture about generating value that surpasses Bruce flat, right? When his time with the company is gone, that's still going to be part of that culture. So I think that that's to me more important than the name on the, on the
1: desk. Yeah. Um, When I, when I think about founder led companies, I'm much more interested in a founder who builds a culture that will outlast them than anything else because at some point that founder either will step away or be forced out or will hopefully be aware that aware enough that i'm not the person to bring the company to the next level like an example recently is the the pinterest ceo and founder stepped down as far as i know voluntarily because he said like i'm not the person like, I got Pinterest to here, and I'm not the person to to take it to the next level, and they hired someone who had that skill set. Um, you know, that's an example of, in my mind, a much more important leadership quality out of a founder than just the innovative, you know, this is my business, I care about it, I'm going to work 80-hour weeks until it, it gets to where I want it to be. Um, you know, the other example, too, I think is like, I mean, I guess we'll find out at some point, but I right now I feel pretty confident that whenever... Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger decide to, or are, or are forced to step down from Berkshire Hathaway. I'm pretty confident that the culture will remain because after being there for so long and sort of showing the world like this is the way this company is successful, I'm I'm pretty confident that when and I forget the who they named is basically named as the person who will take over. who's um, was one of the lieutenant guys. Um, you know that culture is there. Right. And I think I would imagine it will stay with, you know, there might be some different thinking about what sectors and businesses that the company becomes interested in acquiring, um, with maybe some younger, more tech savvy people at the helm, but it seems like the culture itself will remain. Um, and you know, that would be great for, for their shareholders. Yeah.
0: Greg, Greg Abel's, the name of the, Greg Abel. Thank you. Yeah. And he was, and this is part of it because I think it's more than just, we, we can say things like culture and what does that really mean? And it's it's really what it is. It's what the people do, not what people say, is really what culture is. And for Berkshire, what that looks like is Greg Abel came there in the '90s as part of the acquisition of Mid American Energy, which is now the like the main part of what's called Berkshire Hathaway Energy. So he came with that, and from very early in the building of Berkshire, the the acquisitions of these um, these standalone businesses. Buffett, he, he didn't bring, he said, you don't hire really smart people to tell them what to do. Right. He lets everyone manage their own business. Yep. Right. Right. And that, and so that's the key, right? That's, that's that part of the culture for a Berkshire. So, and I think it's similar with, with, with with Boston Omaha. Yeah. Boston Omaha too. Um, But, but I think, well, there's one more thing I want to say too. I think it matters is um, uh, this is, I don't know, I loved, I love this phrase. Maybe it sounds smarter to me than it really is. But the market doesn't issue bonus returns for degree of difficulty, mm-hmm. right? Um, another Peter Lynch uh, ism: um, um, a great company in a mediocre industry is a mediocre company. Tailwinds really matter. You talked about yep. optionality, but economic tailwinds um, and and those outside influences, I think they matter more. Because they help buffer bad managers because the tailwinds, the boat's already moving the direction the river's flowing, right? And I think that that really, you don't have to have a really good navigator that can navigate ups, ups, upstream, right? And then that navigator's gone and some idiot comes in and broadsides the boat and you're a mile downriver when you're trying to go upriver. So I think that matters a lot more to me than necessarily just the management piece. Yeah,
1: no that's a really good point and it it ties right into that some idiot proxy as you called it, right? You know, you, you hopefully you don't have an idiot running your business, but it's this, it's the same kind of thing like it it's sort of a margin of safety to a degree. Like in the same way that holding something for 10 years is a margin of safety against paying overpaying for it, um, you know, having a company or a business that operates in a industry that has massive decade long tailwinds is a margin of safety against management mistakes or, you know, bad capital allocation decisions or a bad acquisition here or there.
0: Um, So, yeah, I think that's a really good point. So, Jeff, before we before we wrap up this segment here, I'm curious. So looking at our list of five stocks here and climbing inside of your brain, is there a company that immediately comes to mind that would absolutely be one of your five and which of these stocks here would you pull out and replace it with?
1: So I, my first thought was to go to what has been sort of my go-to answer recently when it comes to like just an industry I think has massive tailwinds, and that's one of the big cybersecurity companies. But I'm not going to say that because I, a lot of them are still building into profitability and, and in some cases cash flow. So actually what popped into my head when you asked the question was either Home Depot or Lowe's. Um, yeah. You know, I, I think that's another, I think that's a tailwind that will sort of always be around. Like we're either building homes or improving the homes we have sort of continually. Always. People always need yeah. places to live. People always want to improve them. People always want to make their lawns look nice and all that stuff. and, Literally nobody, unless you live in like small town Mayberry sort of places, like goes anywhere but Home, home Depot or Lowe's to to get tools and nails right. and sheetrock and plants and all that kind of stuff, right? So, um, you know, I again, this is without like looking into like where they are valuation wise or how much cash flow they do generate, but I know that they are strong, stable businesses that grow every year, and and, and I, I think that's another you know industry that has massive tailwinds even if it's a little bit more kind of boring than you know something exciting like
0: latin american e-commerce or something like that but um there's There's nothing there's nothing more exciting than making money and one of my favorite things about home depot and lowe's is like if you look at their very long-term performance they have been massive winners for investors massive 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 winners for investors And a big part of it is because they've gotten to this point now where their scale and the markets that they serve, like you said, are, they're stable and yeah, there's going to be downturns, right? If we go through a recession this year, it's going to hurt them. Of course it's going to hurt them, right? People are not, maybe not going to be as quick to just paint a room because they want a new color. It'll be more have-tos and less want-tos. But we talk about the tailwinds here, The, the, the aging housing stock in the U.S., the median Existing home is 37 years old. In the Northeast, where you and I both live, it's like closer to 50 in a lot of markets. That's, that's a lot of age that's starting to show and renovations that need to be done. And there's minimal housing supply. And we know that there's a lot of people that want a house, right? And if you can't buy the house you want, you spend more money on the house you have, right? And those right. are all trends that play right into their favor. And their unit economics are wonderful, and I do know that right now both are relatively reasonably valued, borderline cheap. So I like it. But M- my question is, which of these? <laughs> which I don't know. These? I don't know what I'd swap out. So I'm,
1: I'm least familiar out of the five with Digital Realty Trust, um, and I probably see. I still think there's more risk with Taiwan Semi than you do. Um, so like I, I I'm I'm tempted to say I'd swap out DLR because I'm not, I don't know it as well. I'm tempted to say I'd swap out Taiwan semi because I'm a little bit skittish on it macroecon or you know uh, in terms of like world dynamics and yeah. relations with China and stuff like that um, geopolitical. Thank you, that's the word I was looking for. But gun to my head, I'd probably honestly, I'd probably take out Boston, Omaha, only because it <laughs> still has the most to prove, and that would kill me because. Yeah. I love that company. <laughs> right, right. Uh, the, but if you, but if you, but so like, I guess the question is, if you said gun to my head, you have to own one stock for 10 years and it's got to be either Boston Omaha or Home Depot. I'd pick Home Depot.
0: Well, you, that's, that's, you know, you can't risk, risk. it's risking what you can't afford to lose at, at some point here. Right? right. So that, so I guess if I had to choose, I would pick Boston Omaha.
1: All right. What about you? What is, what's not on the list that you can think of and what would you swap out? Am I
0: allowed to say it? Go ahead. Okay. I know you're going to anyway. This was my number six stock. And it was CrowdStrike. It's CrowdStrike, right? Loses money on a gap basis, but very strong cash flows, great cash margins, massive addressable market, seems like an area of technology and software as a service that is more recession resistant, even though it's not a perfect protection because if companies companies downsize and have less desks and less devices tied to people then you know that can it's not it's not a perfect protection from recession but just again all the economic tailwinds strong business seems to have a really deep strong culture uh their customers love them they give them more money every year like yeah yeah that was but again it's it's frankly historically software has not been besides microsoft and 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 um uh, salesforce there haven't been a ton of software companies that have really been great long-term investments. So
1: that's, that's my, my, my biggest concern is there's a few companies in that space that I really, that I like. And if there's no telling if it's not, if it ends up being winner take all or winner take most, I'm not sure I know right now, which one's going to be that company. Um, You know, like I'm a big fan of Fortinet as an example, just another cybersecurity company that that really puts up strong numbers and Mm -hmm. you know if you told me they end up being the winner over CrowdStrike 10 years from now like i don't know that i would have anything to any way to say you're wrong so that, that would be the reason i'd stay away but i again i own it i love it um it's just it's really it's a different ballgame when you think about top five so jeff i think it's it's i think it's time for a break right it is so, so you're going to hear uh, you're going to hear either, <laughs> either an ad from another company,
0: me again, or nothing. It'll be one so, of the three. So either, either either you're going to hear the sound of us making money, or you're just going to hear us talking again, right? Yeah. So, but either way, we'll see you in a second. All right, everybody, welcome welcome back from the from the brief break. There, really hoping you heard somebody else talking because that means we're going to get a little money. We like money, yeah, Jeff. We do. Which actually brings us to our second little segment here today. Fall in love with the story, but marry the cash flows. You know what made me think about this one? So it was a couple things. So one, this, this was actually kind of a product of that, the, the, the mental exercise that we just went through, the five stocks for 10 years of really kind of distilling it down. But like that catchphrase, marry the cash, but or, you know, fall in love with the story of Mary, the cash flows, you know, there's those stupid memes, like she's a seven, but she maxes out her 401k. Right. Or, you know, she's a 10, but she has 10, $20,000 in credit card debt. You know, those they're like, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Kind of stupid. It kind of got me thinking about that with, with, with stocks. So I, I, I know you, you came up with some ideas for stocks that like the story versus the cash flows, like, what do you love versus what do you want to marry?
1: So this was so when when you proposed this, I, I went through my portfolio, and I was trying to find stocks that have a story that I that resonates with me, but also have positive cash flows. And I found a lot of companies with positive cash flows, but don't necessarily have this like compelling story. Like, like she's a, you a know, ten, with,
0: and she maxes out her four hundred and one k contributions.
1: Exactly right. So. Here are 3 that I came up with. And I thought it was these were interesting cuz like they're not what I would have initially thought of as like the top of mind companies. So one of them is Etsy, right? Like I like the story of Etsy, right? It's sort of a unique place you can go to get customized, you know, bespoke whatever gifts. Um so it's got a cool story to it and generates positive cash flow, but it also sort of got so caught up in like the covid craziness that like it never feels like a super high conviction holding in my heart. Um I haven't added to it in in much in in a while. Um that was the first one. The second one was the trade desk which again, I like the fact that, you know, I think the switch to programmatic advertising on streaming platforms is another like big tailwind, I think and they're a leader there. I think that's a good story, positive cash flows. I do have high conviction in that one. Um and then the other one that I couldn't not put on the list is Zoom, right? Like yeah, right. the story of Zoom is inescapable for, for the past couple of years. And, and you know, its future, I think, will be more in what it's able to do with enterprise customers in, a, in areas where the average consumer is not going to see it anymore versus just video chat like we had to do during the pandemic. But again, massive cash flows. Um, and it... I just, these three jumped out at me as being humorous to talk through because they're not, again, it's sort of this whole episode is about like thought processes that you go through that are different than your normal investing process. And I found that, you know, I I listed them and I was going to change them. And then I was like, no, I want to have the conversation about these weird three choices that sort of, in my mind, match those two things, right? Like a story that you can fall in love with, or or at least a compelling story, but still the cash flows that you might want to marry. So, I don't know if you came up with ones, but I want to know your thoughts on those three.
0: Yeah, no, I I love it, right? But the, and and it's kind of interesting, right? Because with Zoom, I think it's people are kind of have fallen out of out of love with the story because there's a little bit of fatigue. Um, with yeah.
1: with, and with I'm them. one of those people. Like yeah. I, you, you, know, you and I talked about, about this. this. Yeah, we like, talked about it. I, All of my purchases of Zoom were when it was wildly overvalued. Yeah, and. It's not a big position for me, like it's tiny, so I know that if I just bought it today at the dollar amount I typically spend when I do my weekly allocation, I could probably go from like a position that's down eighty percent to like down forty percent, right? because it's just I, there was so t- such a tiny amount of money at a high valuation I could put a big chunk in now at a lower one um, and I just can't quite bring myself to do it. And I think it is because, you know, we're not on Zoom anymore. I still think it's the best video conferencing platform out there of all the ones I've used. I've used Teams. I've used um, Cisco. um, I use the Google product at work. And Zoom is by far the best one. Like, that's not a question. But I keep looking at it from the consumer lens. You know, I don't know how well zoom phone works or what the role of a zoom room is in a corporate office. Right. So like, that's just a world I'm not familiar enough to like buy into the story on yet. Um, you know, so that it's a weird one for me because I'm not able to sort of separate my investor brain from my consumer brain on that one.
0: I'm going to go with one. It's a company I've talked about before, but I just, I think it's, it is, it is such a great story, but that's Trex, Trex company makes the, Definitely. Yeah, that's a good one. I, yeah, if I had thought of that, I would have put it on my list. Yep, it's a great story, right? It's it's a, it's a product that's appealing to homeowners because it's reliable and durable, and it's pretty, and you don't have to put stains on it or water treatment, and you don't have a rotted board that your wife's foot goes through, and then you spend a weekend having to repair it. You know, you don't have to replace it every seven or eight years or more often, depending on where you live. And it's 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 taking basically. A waste product that would just go into the waste stream and it's giving it 25 more years of life and by the way the company consistently generates positive operating cash flow they generated almost 400 million dollars in operating cash over the past year Uh, great story and great cash flows
1: yeah that's a really good one i wish i had thought of that myself i mean i'm 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 smarter than you jeff so yeah i know I'm I'm just here um, because of my sexy low voice. Um, you, the, you don't even have that now. I know. I <laughs> the one I had that one day that we didn't record. <laughs> Honestly, the first one that jumped out to me story wise was the one I mentioned earlier in the um, podcast, which is outset. Like that's yeah. the one right now that I'm like is most on my mind as being like the story I love, but it doesn't have the cash flows yet. Um, you know, hopefully, it gets to the point where it does. Right. But it's interesting as you were explaining Trex, I was. I started to think like not that I necessarily want to do this but it might be fun sometime to build like build a portfolio of stocks that have the story and the cash flow, right? Like I wonder how that would do versus the market over a 5 or 10 year span. That'd be let's let's do that. We'll do that sometime.
0: All that, right, Jeff, this is this is we've we've
1: done it. We've 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 talked. We did, and it was good. It was good to be back. I, 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 Matt did a great job last week, but I missed. Uh, I missed our weekly uh, record time here, Jason. Me
0: too. Me too. It's very good to have you back. The the band is back together. That's right. Are we a band? If there's just two of us, or are we a performing duo? No, we can be a band.
1: Can I a think. Band? Yeah, we're two uh, two white dudes in our 40s. Like
0: we should be a band. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. You heard it right here, ladies and gentlemen. We are the mattering. Thank you, Cleveland. (laughs) All right, friends. As always, we love to answer these hard questions about investing. We're just giving our answers. It's up to you to find your own answers out there. I still have faith in you. All right, Jeff. See you next time. See you next time.